This morning we find ourselves about halfway through Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. And if we have learned anything to this point in Jesus' teaching is that his approach to making disciples involves ignoring essentially every single natural instinct we have and doing the exact opposite. Now, I am incapable of hearing the phrase doing the opposite and not thinking of a particular episode that comes from the NBC sitcom Seinfeld. I am someone who grew up in the 1980s and 90s mainly. For those of you who remember and those of you who don't, uh, the characters in this show Seinfeld find themselves invariably almost every episode sitting at Monk's Cafe, a local neighborhood restaurant and At one point, one of the characters, uh, George Costanza, blunders in and sits down next to his friends Jerry and Elaine, and he says, every decision that I've ever made in my life has been wrong. My life is the complete opposite of everything that I want it to be. Every instinct I have, every aspect, be it something to wear, something to eat, it's all been wrong, George says. Now, at this point, it's great. It just begins to ramp up. A waitress walks up to him. And she gets one look at him, and without even asking him, she tells him what he's going to order for food. She says, she says, tuna on toast, coleslaw, cup of coffee, and she starts to walk away. And then it hits George like a punch in the face. He says, no, 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 wait a minute. I always have tuna on toast. Nothing's ever worked for me with tuna on toast. I want the complete opposite of tuna on toast. Chicken salad on rye, untoasted, with a side of potato salad and a cup of tea. Ha ha! And the waitress heads off to get the order. Well, the next thing that happens is George's friend Elaine notices that a rather attractive woman is is sitting at the counter and she's uh, attracted George's attention, or George has attracted her attention somehow. So she tells him, she says, George, uh, there is a gal at the corner that just, at the counter that just looked at you. George responds, he says, so what? What am I supposed to do? She says, well, go talk to her. George informs her, Elaine, bald men with no jobs and no money who live with their parents, don't approach strange women. And then his buddy Jerry chimes in, well, here's your chance to try what? The opposite. Instead of tuna salad and being intimidated by women, chicken salad and going right up to her. And George reflects and admits, yeah, I, I should do the opposite. I should. And then Jerry delivers the, delivers the glorious line. He says, if every instinct you have is wrong, then the opposite would have to be right. And George, this, this revelation lands on him for, with full force for the first time, and he says, yes, I will do the opposite. And so he confesses. He says, I used to sit here and do nothing and regret it for the rest of the day, but now I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to do something. So he gets up from his chair. He, he takes one last breath and kind of screws up his courage, and he approaches the woman at the counter. And he says, excuse me, I, I couldn't help but notice that you were looking in my direction. And the woman says to him, oh, yeah, I just ordered the exact lunch that you just ordered. And then George one last time takes a deep breath and he says, my name is George. I'm unemployed and I live with my parents. And, and smitten, the woman responds to him, I'm Victoria. Hi. <laughs> if every instinct you have is wrong, well, then the opposite would have to be right. How's your walk with the Lord these days? Are you growing 
downward in your esteem for yourself increasingly and upward in your esteem for Christ. How are your, honestly, how are your connections with lost people just this past week or so? Are you moving toward those who are far from Christ instead of avoiding them? How's your growth in in personal holiness? Are you making discernible progress in the killing of your sin by the power of the Holy Spirit? Or are the same old sins defeating you day after day? If every instinct you have is wrong, then the opposite would have to be right. Two weeks ago, Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you who are poor, hungry, who weep, and when people hate you and exclude you, blessed are you. And woe to you who are rich, full, who laugh, and when all people speak well of you. Last week, Jesus told us, love your who? Enemies. This morning, we've already heard the sermon text read for us. Jesus, what he is teaching us today is, is no less countercultural. Jesus knows exactly the bent of our sinful hearts, and so he commands and counsels us today to do the opposite. Here's the big idea today. Our culture teaches us to be exacting of others and to go easy on ourselves. Our Savior teaches the reverse. Our culture teaches us to be exacting of others while going easy on ourselves. Our Savior teaches the reverse. Like every other aspect of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would have us to do the opposite. The opposite of the world around us, the opposite to the sin that's within us. This is how we make disciples who in turn make disciples. Now, I'd like to give both points up front today, and we'll just seek to unfold each of them in turn. Making disciples who make disciples requires two things according to this text this morning. Number one, merciful interaction with others. And number two, careful examination of yourself. Making disciples who make disciples requires merciful interaction with others and careful examination of yourself. Our culture teaches us to be exacting of others while going easy on ourselves. Our Savior teaches us the reverse. So let's begin with point one. Making disciples who make disciples requires merciful interaction with others. The reason why I believe that mercy is the best way to describe the governing principle that we see in verses 37 and 38 is that mercy is exactly what Jesus is driving at in verse 36. Now, we took a look at verse 36 last week as the conclusion to the text, but given where it sits in Jesus' flow of thought, verse 36 could easily serve as the introduction to this week's text. Listen to how seamlessly Jesus' teaching runs from verses 36 to 38. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. See what Jesus is doing here in verses 37 and 38? The four commands in verses 37 and 38, namely judge not, condemn not, forgive, and give, all four of them represent concrete ways that we can extend the mercy spoken of in verse 36. These four commands are not random. 
They are each at the very heart of what it means to become an increasingly merciful person because Jesus urges us to be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Now, I've always found Wayne Grudem's definition of mercy to be exceedingly helpful to me. I'll I'll lay it on you here. Grudem defines mercy as God's goodness toward those in misery or distress. That's beautiful. That is simple. That is biblical. That's right. Mercy is God's goodness toward those in misery or distress. So we see, for example, the nature of God's mercy powerfully unfolded for us in the request that King David has of the prophet Gad in 2 Samuel 24, 14. Listen, listen to this verse. 2 Samuel 24, 14, David says to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of men. Isn't that fascinating? According to that passage, mercy, in other words, is God's native tongue. David knew it. At the same time, for us human beings left to our own devices, mercy is all too often a foreign language, isn't it? Exacting of others, easy on ourselves. Consider the request of the two blind men of Jesus in Matthew 9.27. Matthew 9.27, two blind men cry out to Jesus, have mercy on us, son of David. Have what? Have mercy. Why mercy? Because they're miserable. They're suffering. They're blind. And mercy is God's goodness toward those in misery or distress. Mercy is marked by compassion. Put it any way you want. Clemency, generosity, sympathy toward other human beings. Making disciples who make disciples requires merciful interaction with others. So let's just take a look at each of these four aspects of mercy. Verse 37 says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Let's be clear as to precisely what this is and this is not saying. This is quickly becoming one of our culture's favorite Bible verses. It's even eclipsed John 3.16, I think, and I think the culture has it wrong. I agree wholeheartedly with New Testament scholar Daryl Bach who observes that this does not refer to a refusal to engage in appropriate ethical evaluation. That's right. Jesus is not encouraging us to avoid conflict with other people at all cost. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Because down in verse 42, Jesus shows us exactly how we ought to engage in conflict with other people. Furthermore, the same Jesus who commands us judge not in Luke 6, 37 turns around and commands us to judge with right judgment in John 7, 24. So what does judge not mean? Well, let's set it in context. What's the governing principle of verses 36, 37, 38? It's be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Jesus is teaching us here to ignore that self-serving instinct that each of us have, it leads us to be exacting of others while going easy on ourselves. He's, he's encouraging us to, by God's Spirit, to invert these impulses and develop at least the initial capacity before we've sized up the situation to take it easy on the person in front of us while being far more exacting of ourselves, which we'll see in point two. So again, Jesus is not saying avoid conflict. Jesus rarely avoided conflict. He found himself routinely involved in conflict. He dealt with people straight up. What he's telling us here is to be careful, to lead gently. 
fact, that's one of the mottos of Central Baptist Theological Seminary, where we sent a number of our folks over the years, by the way. And I, that's why I love, one of the reasons I love that seminary, lead gently. Can you imagine creating a generation of leaders who lead gently? It's one of the reasons I'm so fond of that school. So this command has a promise attached to it. You see that in verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Now, properly understood, that is a massive, powerful motive for merciful dealings with other people. And to understand the full force of it, we just need to stir in the second command found in verse 37, and that's condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Is this starting to get a little clearer here for you, as it is for me, as I studied this this past week? Not to mention, like, terribly uncomfortable. In the words of one author, God promises to treat us exactly as we treat other people. That's a frightening reality to contemplate. God promises to treat you exactly as you treat other people, just based on your approach to other people this past weekend. How's the judgment day shaping up for you? James 2.13 warns us, judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And let's not forget the broader application of the Sermon on the Mount here. We're talking about making disciples who make disciples. In other words, Jesus isn't just outlining for us the sorts of disciples he wants us to be. Jesus is outlining for us here the sorts of disciples he wants us to produce. I am so tired of seeing believers who seem to style themselves as judge and jury everywhere they go, particularly sitting in judgment on the unbelieving world. I think it drove the Apostle Paul up the wall as well. 1 Corinthians 5.12, Paul asks, what have I to do with judging unbelievers? And then the question that none of us like to hear, is it not those inside the church whom we are to judge? The answer is yes. We are to have nothing to do with judging and condemning unbelievers, and yet for so many Christians, it is their basic posture toward the world. So judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Now for the second half of point one, we, just, we need to see how Jesus is going to spin this positively. Verse 37, forgive and you will be forgiven. Isn't that spectacular? So simple. Doesn't it make you want to be all kinds of gracious with other folks? Forgive and you will be forgiven. Now we also need to be clear about what we mean when we say forgive. What is forgiveness? Well, forgiveness is at least four things. I've learned these from different sources over the years, but all of them are neatly summarized in a little booklet that we have in Fellowship Hall called Peacemaking Principles. Um, If you don't have that booklet, take it. Bring it home. Internalize it. Memorize it. Live it. Peacemaking Principles. Here's four promises of forgiveness. When you're saying, I forgive you to someone, The first thing you're telling them is, first and foremost, I will not dwell on this incident any longer. I won't even dwell on it. Secondly, when you say to another person, I forgive you, what you're saying is, I will not bring this incident up and use it against you. Third, you're saying, when I say I forgive you, you're saying, I will not talk to other people about this incident. And then fourth, 
When you forgive another person, you're telling them, I will not allow this incident to stand between our relationship in, in any way here going forward. Now that's forgiveness. Are you, by that measure, a forgiving person? Most of us think we are. <laughs> the only problem with that is that we tend to go very easy on our analysis of ourselves. We say, I forgive you, but inside we're thinking, I'm not forgetting this. I'm going to continue to dwell on this. We say, I forgive you, but what we mean is, I reserve the right to bring this up at any point that's convenient for me. We say, I forgive you, but we tell six other people about how offended we are, sparing them no details. We say, I forgive you, but we know deep down that this is standing between us and this other person, this incident, whatever it is. Are you a forgiving person? I'll tell you what I know for sure. If you are a Christian, you are a forgiven person. 1 John 1.9 assures us, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And when God, through Jesus Christ, offers you forgiveness by virtue of His Son's sacrificial substitutionary atonement on your behalf on the cross, He really forgives you. When you repent before, of your sin before a holy God, He refuses to dwell on the incident. He won't bring it up again and use it against you. He's not going to blab it all over heaven and earth. He won't allow the incident to stand between you and Him. He'll just move forward in forgiveness. Do you know this kind of forgiveness? Because it frees you. It frees you to be lavish with forgiveness to other people. Today, you can know this forgiveness. You can confess your sin to God. And if you do, He is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The final aspect of mercy that we see here in point one is unfolded in verse 38. Let's go there. He says, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now that that last phrase is the governing principle um, that sums up what all these examples of mercy have in common. That four in verse 38 is key because it establishes a relationship between the indicative statement with the measure you use, it'll be measured to you, and then all of the imperatives. Judge not, condemn not, forgive, and, and give. This is a tightly packed couple of verses. So give and it will be given to you. Okay, Give in what way? Let's just interpret this in the broadest possible sense. Let's interpret this in the broadest possible sense for the purposes of disciple-making. Give of yourself to other people. Give of your time. <clears throat> give of your possessions. Give of your emotional bandwidth. Give of your home. Give of your family. Give. And God will see to it that it will be given to you. God will not out be outgiven. That's the point here. Go ahead and give yourself away to other folks because I assure you, you cannot outgive God. And it's a vivid image, isn't it, in verse 38? Jesus goes on to unfold this. It's, only the, it's the only time in the Bible where we see this image, so it's worth dwelling on for a moment. The illustration is that of a, a seller measuring out like grain or corn at a marketplace. First, the, the seller 
takes his container and he measures out maybe three quarters or so into his container of, of corn. And then he shakes it like in a circular motion to get the grain to settle down a little further. Next thing he does is he presses the corn down with both hands so he can make sure there's even more room to pour more on top. And then after that, he begins to gladly fill in the room that remains, doing everything he can to make sure there is absolutely no more room for any more grain. That's what Jesus means when he says, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, be put into your lap. So friends, if you have been open with all that you have, with all that you are, in order to be and make disciples, who will in turn be and make disciples, rest assured, God will not be stingy with you on Judgment Day. Give and it will be given to you. Now granted, these things run directly against the sinful instincts of our hearts, no doubt, not to mention the sinful inclinations of the world around us. Our culture teaches us to be exacting of other people and to go easy on ourselves. Jesus teaches the reverse. Judge not, condemn not, forgive and give. This is the kind of person you want to become and this is the kind of person by God's grace that you want to build into and, and be a part of creating for the sake of the gospel. Making disciples who make disciples requires merciful interaction with others. Okay, second point today. Making disciples who make disciples requires careful examination of yourself. Making disciples who make disciples requires careful examination of yourself. Verses 39 to 45 all hang together, so let's, let's read these. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, while you do not notice yourself that the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of his heart, the mouth speaks. Making disciples who make disciples requires careful examination of yourself. That's what these seven verses have in common. You could boil it down, I think, to that phrase. So in this context, when Jesus asks, can a blind man lead a blind man? And then he says, will they not both fall into a pit? Jesus is painting a picture of our own spiritual condition apart from him as we would seek to make disciples of other people. And it's not very flattering. Um, Apart from God's grace to us in Christ, When we are seeking to make disciples, we are nothing more than the blind leading the blind. And you know the problem with this. You are going nowhere together. I guess you're going somewhere, right? That somewhere would be described in verse 39 as a pit. The the word that Luke uses for pit here isn't just a little roadside ditch. The Greek term behind this in the words of one New Testament scholar is a deep pit, a mammoth hole that you're not going to be able to claw your way out of. This is trouble. Verse 40 then follows with a warning for us, doesn't it? 
Verse 40 should serve notice to every leader in this room, every parent, every grandparent, every disciple maker in this church. Verse 40 should burn into our soul. A disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Now, look, if if you have an inflated vision of who you are, verse 40 won't threaten you much. But if you've lived long enough to let life kick the tar out of you a little bit, verse 40 is awfully humbling. Verse 40 is like a bucket of cold water. This is very sobering. For better or for worse, I am a lot like the men who have trained me, starting with my father and moving out to men who built into me for the sake of the gospel of Christ. Now, that doesn't bother me so much. I love my father. and I love the men who've, who've mentored me. What alarms me, given how unbelievably disappointed I am with myself at 40 years of age, that those that I have trained when fully mature will look a lot like me. That's a frightening thought. Can I be honest with you? Most days, I am singularly unimpressed with myself. The more I walk with Jesus, the more enamored I am of Him, the less impressed I am with me. I wonder if you don't feel that same way about yourself in your walk with Jesus. Which leads us then to verses 41 and 42, to the log and the speck. This is why I believe that we as disciple-makers are in view in verse 39 in the parable of the blind leading the blind because Jesus isn't finished with this image yet. He's going to pick it up again in verses 41 and 42 and show us what's at the root of our visual impairment. Take a look, uh, no pun intended, (laughs) take a look at verses 41 and 42. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take, the, take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take out the log that is in your own eye, then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Notice once again, Jesus is not teaching us to avoid conflict here. He just assumes it's going to happen. He wants to equip us for it. And verse 42 runs on the assumption that we are totally willing willing to do eye spec surgery on another person provided we remove the gigantic railroad tie protruding out of our own eye. That's what he's getting at here. And notice, we'll get to self-examination in just a moment. I I just want to make this point. We need to become, this passage assumes that we need to become increasingly a peculiar sort of people, a unique sort of church that is hungry for and in fact lovers of correction. That's what this passage assumes. Notice I didn't say we need to become folks who are experts at giving correction. We don't relish that, although we will do it because Being in the local church requires that from time to time, and you don't dodge that bullet. You move into a a situation where you need to adjust somebody, correct somebody, and you, you do it. No, I'm talking about becoming a church fellowship who's more and more at home with receiving correction. Proverbs 9, 8 says, Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. 
not resent you, not resist you, not reject you, but love you. Are you growing in wisdom by that measure? Proverbs 12.1, I saw this in my devotions yesterday. Proverbs 12.1 just says it straight out. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. (laughs) Did you know that verse is in your Bible? Proverbs 12.1. He who hates correction, who hates being adjusted, who hates reproof, he's stupid. One of the ways that you know that you are growing in wisdom is if you are increasingly receptive to and, in fact, eager for criticism because you want to grow, especially criticism from a godly person. Uh, Psalm 141, verse 5 is the gold standard here. It has been for, for many years for me. Psalm 141, verse 5. I love this. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Psalm 141, verse 5. So is this you? Are you becoming a lover of correction? By God's grace, you can become a lover of correction. You can grow in this. And one way to become better at receiving godly correction and adjustment from other people is to learn to beat them to the punch. In other words, become accustomed to getting the log out of your own eye. I'll tell you what, the person who passes their days mainly in correcting and censuring other people, has absolutely no idea what great a liability they are to their family, to the church, to any organization they might be a part of. I mean, don't you have your hands full with yourself? I do. In context, this log in our own eye is what makes us blind men. We have to connect verse 39 with verses 41 and 42 if we're going to Smell what Jesus is cooking here. The blind man is blind because he is blinded by his own unexamined life. You see that's what he's driving at? The blind man is blind because he is blinded by his own self-righteousness. He's blinded by his sin. Now we can hope that others will see this for us and be willing to adjust and correct us if need be, but that's not the drift of Jesus' teaching here. In this portion of Scripture, Jesus is teaching us to go on the offensive and, in effect, to beat others to the punch to become the sort of person who is increasingly aware of our own sin, that we are not some great asset to any organization that we're a part of, but primarily a liability, that we are aware of sin that must be put to death, sin that must be repented of, right? The old Pogo cartoon, we have met the enemy, he is us. And what makes this all the more difficult is that Jesus implies that we curiously appear to have 20-20 vision for other folks' specs and maybe 2200 for our own railroad ties. Our ability to see our brother's speck but not our own log is, is proof positive of this. The speck that Jesus is referring to here is a teeny, tiny little flake of wood in the original, just a grain of dust something that might not even bother you if you're a contact wearer, okay? The log in the original language is actually a word that was used in the first century to describe the main support beam of a building, okay? So our house was built in 1922. Um, The main support beam of our house is this huge metal beam that runs the length of the, the basement. It's massive. Our entire house is sitting on it. 
and imagine me balancing this massive metal beam across my face as I walk over to try to get a little piece of dust out of your eye. It's a hilarious picture. Jesus had a rollicking sense of humor. It's also a sobering picture because this beam, this pride, this envy, this sinful anger, this greed, sloth, gluttony, lust that blinds us, it keeps us from being not nearly as effective a disciple-maker as we ought to be otherwise. And Jesus just calls us what we are here in verse 42. He says, you hypocrite. It's a word that meant play actor in the first century. You fraud. And then he instructs us, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out that is in your brother's eye. Only then will you see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. So I bring us back to 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins. Here's the good news. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You'll be a very little help. In fact, you'll be a positive harm to other people until you do. Now, verses 43 to 45 make the same point. He gives the parable in verses 43 and 44, and then he offers the authoritative interpretation in verse 45. Let's just read it. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure of his heart produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, friends, we can't fake this, at least not for long. What you grow in your fields is what you load on your trucks. You can only export what you are manufacturing. You serve what's in your cupboard. Or as Jesus says in verse 45, out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. We do what we do because we are what we are and we want what we want. You can't lie to God. He won't be fooled. And whatever you do, don't lie to yourself. You can probably staple fresh figs on a thorn bush but they won't stay fresh for long. When seeking to make disciples, you only reproduce what you are. So why not just go for broke? When you look another person in the eye with the desire to mentor them along the path toward Christ-likeness, toward maturity in Christ, don't have two standards in mind. The one that you are trying to lead them toward and the one that you are secretly going to live on your own. Rather, confess your sin. Leave it at the foot of the cross. Jesus doesn't have two standards in mind here. Invite others to follow you as you follow Christ. It's one of my favorite moments in either counseling another person or discipling them. If I'm calling them to a costly commitment to turn away from sin, I just let them know, I'm going there with you. We are shoulder to shoulder. I'm not going to ask anything of you that I'm not going to do right alongside you. And by the way, when this conversation is over, let's just switch seats because I'm sure that there's plenty that you could teach me. That sort of approach is going to bear good fruit in disciple making. A disciple is not above his teacher. Never. Well, let's wrap up. Our culture teaches us to be exacting of others while going easy on ourselves. Our Savior teaches the reverse. So making disciples who make disciples requires two things today. Merciful interaction with others. Be the kind of person that people don't just kind of run from as soon as you're walking in the room. But they see a mercy-filled person you want more of. 
It's like the salt on a good potato chip. A person who's full of mercy tends to attract people. So be merciful in your action with others and, and give careful examination to yourself. Not vain speculation, but careful examination. Know your heart and know what a liability it is. Don't follow your heart, whatever this world tells you. To follow Jesus is not only to swim against the tide of the world around us, but to swim against the tide of the sinful nature within us. How desperate we are, aren't we, for the renewing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. How desperately we depend on Him to live a text like this. The supernatural work that enables us to live worthy of the gospel. The fact that a disciple is not above his teacher ought to serve us noticed in our quest to be and make disciples of Jesus. We rise to the level of our leaders So choose your leaders wisely, follow them closely, and live deliberately so that those who have their eyes fastened onto you will see the person and work of Jesus Christ through you. Next Sunday is our final Sunday in chapter 6, and it will also serve as the conclusion to our study of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus saves his most memorable parable for last. I love this parable, the tale of two houses, one built on sand and one built on rock. And obedience to the words of Jesus Christ is what makes the difference between the two. We'll pick it up then. Right now, let's pray.